Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. I'm really honored to have our guest joining us via Zoom to talk about her new book. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa Inouye. Thanks so much for having me. And on behalf of Kate, um, thanks again for having us. I wish she could be here. And um, but it's a real honor to be able to talk about this project that we worked on together. And um, we're going to talk about uh, Melissa and Kate's book that is um, combines about 22 or 23 essays of Latter-day Saint women. It's called Essays on the Life and Mind and the Heart, Every Needful Thing. And Melissa will talk about Doctrine and Covenants, Section 88, and how it's the framework. Um, but I, if some of you aren't familiar with Melissa, let me just read um, her bio here. She'll be embarrassed that I'm doing this. And I've already lost my page, listeners, so that's not a good thing. Here it is. Um, Melissa, in a way, is a fourth-generation descendant of immigrants to the United States from China and Fukuoka, Japan. She was raised in Southern California and, and received her A.B. and Ph.D. degrees from Harvard University. She is a senior lecturer in Asian Studies at the University of Auckland and a historian at the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She is the author of China and the True Jesus, Charisma and Organization in Chinese Christian Church, and Crossings, a bald Asian-American Latter-day Saint woman of scholars, ventures through life, death, cancer, and motherhood, not necessarily in that order. She enjoys hiking and digging the dirt with her husband, four children, and her dog, Birdie. Kate Holbrook listeners um, died on August 20th, 22. Um, she received her BA from Brigham Young University, an MTS from Harvard Divinity School, and a PhD from Boston University. She is the outreach academic, out, she's the academic outreach director at the Church of Jesus, in the history department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where she focuses on women's history Kate books include The First 50 Years of the Reese Society, Key Documents in Latter-day Saint Mormon History, Woman and Mormonism, Historical Contemporary Perspectives, and at the Age of the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Woman. And her husband, Sam Brown, has um, made so many wonderful tributes, as well as so many others. Um, and we will link to her obituary. It's a beautiful obituary. We'll link to it in the show notes. For those of you who don't want to read this beautiful obituary about your friend, Melissa, and her legacy is, lives on with the work you co-did. And, and so I just thought it would be wonderful for Melissa just to share about this book. I think it's in, and why they wrote it, why they brought forth these 22 stories and what they hope to accomplish in our community. Is that okay for an introduction, Melissa? Sure, that's great. So Kate and I worked together, not only at the church history department, but we also worked on the uh, imprint board of the Maxwell Institute. Um, and if you know the Maxwell Institute, it's an institution at BYU dedicated to um, supporting and nurturing disciple scholars. So people who are both you know, faithful Latter-day Saints and or members of, of any religion um, who are pursuing scholarship uh, is based, of course, on the legacy of Neil A. Maxwell, um, really smart 
person who loved scholarship and who also was extremely faithful. So Kate and I were trying to address a kind of gap in the productions of the Living Faith series. There's many more books in the Faith series authored by men than there are by women. And as I've said in a couple of places, there's a couple of structural reasons for this. One is just that most of the living faith authors tend to be academics. And that's, that's what it's about, right? About um, people who are scholars who also uh, are people of faith, but in academia, you know, patriarchy is everywhere uh, in all places of the world, including academia. And it's, um, there's a kind of longstanding uh, disadvantage that women have in academia, which is that um, they're, they tend to not be represented at the highest levels of academic uh, administration. And it's not because women aren't smarter because they can't do research, but it's because um, statistically speaking, they tend to be asked more often than, than men to you know, do pastoral duties like counsel students or uh, handle large um, undergraduate classes, um, you know, introductory classes, or to um, do a lot of mentoring and advising. Uh, some studies show that students are much more likely to go to a female professor um, than a male professor when they're having a kind of crisis and they need help, which is great uh, for the students, but it means altogether that there's less time for female academics to do their researching and their publishing, especially when you combine that with the fact that they tend to um, be saddled with more kind of domestic duties, like uh, managing the household, taking care of kids, picking people up from from school and so on. So there's that one kind of uh, structural imbalance, which makes it harder for women's voices to kind of rise to the surface. And then within the church, of course, there's another structural imbalance, which is that the vast majority of people in leadership positions um, that speak, you know, to large audiences in the church tend to be men. True. <laughs> so, so because of that and, and other factors, you know, there's, we just didn't see a lot of living faith books. And so that meant that there aren't as many mentors for Latter-day Saint women or, or role models um, for all Latter-day Saints in seeing how do you, you know, how can you be a faithful Latter-day Saint who's also really smart and also be a woman? So, so for all those reasons, Kate and I um, thought we should put this book together. And one of the ways that we kind of solved the problem was that instead of asking, you know, women to put out this huge outlay of time and effort to make a monograph, you know, a huge 200 page or something book um, all about faith uh, and scholarship, just a very taxing, very personal, sometimes painful project. Um, we thought we will, we'll just ask for an essay. And, and I think, I think the women who were involved will say even that essay, you know, producing the essay was, it was a huge um, effort, but what, what they came up with was extraordinary. And I, you know, I read this book to my daughter at night now. Um, I kind of read her a chapter a night. And as I'm reading it, I'm just blown away by the, the wisdom and the faith and the tremendously valuable experience of the contributors to this book. And I'm just so glad that, that my daughter in particular is kind of learning about faith from this extraordinary stable of writers. Would you take a moment if um, you've got the book in front of you and actually um, list the 22 women and if you want to just say a note or two about who they are? So um, this is really cool, actually. So we listed the contributors in the contributors section and we listed the year that they received their highest degree. That's cool. 
in this list, you can see this huge range kind of generations, you know, of, of different um, scholars. So I'll just, I'll just go alphabetically, but I'll note some things. So we have um, Lainey McLean Armstrong, who is has a PhD in choral studies. She directs the San Francisco Girls Chorus. Sorry, she directs choral studies in the San Francisco Girls Chorus. Then we have Emily Bates, who's a biologist. Um, she was trained at Harvard Medical School. She's now at the University of Colorado. We have Marion Bishop, who got a PhD in English. And then she's like, no, <laughs> I, I want to do something more practical, which she talks about in her in her essay. And she became a doctor. She got a, a degree in medicine and she's an emergency medicine physician in Wyoming. Then we have Carrie Ann Simonini Deloach, who was a medic in the army uh, for the 101st Airborne Air Assault Division and who runs her own company in uh, selling vintage clothing to movie studios, who has a PhD from Rice. And I think she's our most newly minted PhD. Her She got her degree in 2021. We have Lisa Groh, who had a JD from Harvard Law School and is a professor at Brigham Young University. And she was the first woman um, ever to graduate summa cum laude from uh, from Harvard Law School. And I think also like the first person ever. No, I'm messing it up. It's in her book. Okay, I'll, I'll get to that. She, but anyway, um, let me just redo the Lisa thing because it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. And I don't want to mess it up. So then we have Lisa Grow, who um, got a JD from Harvard Law and is a law professor at Brigham Young University. And then we have Elizabeth Hammond, who is a doctor and also a medical researcher. She pioneered uh, transplant studies, uh, figuring out the role of antibodies in transplants. And she received her medicine degree from the University of Utah in 1967. So she's our um, most senior contributor. So, so 1967 to 2021, that's like, you know, 60 years. Well, yeah, 50 years, more than half a century. Pretty incredible. Uh, we have Tona Hangen, who is a historian at Worcester State University. Uh, Kiaka Hemi, who is a professor at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. Uh, Kate Holbrook. Valerie Hudson, uh, she earned her PhD in political science from Ohio State University in 1983. And very, um, she's famous for her studies of, um, of birth ratios. And um, for example, studying the one-child policy in China and the effect that um, an excess of men has on um, security in general. Um, we have Isoi Francis Ikponamwen, who is maybe the kind of most senior legal person in the church right now. She was the emeritus chief judge of Edo State in Nigeria. So like a state Supreme Court head chief justice. Um, there's me, there's Farina King, who's a historian of indigenous peoples, who's a botanist, uh, who just became a full professor at um, Maryville University in Missouri. Uh, we have Noemi Lubomirsky, who's a mathematician in Argentina at the University of La Plata, Jenny Pulsifer, professor of history at BYU, Tanya Samu, who's at the University of Auckland, who she's, she studies education, mm -hmm. Ariel Silver, who does literature, um, Michael and Steele, another BYU law professor um, from an indigenous background. She, uh, we have Kimberly Teeter, who is a psychologist uh, who studied at Harvard Med School and Yeshiva University, Astrid Tuminez, the president of Utah Valley University. Um, Ana Maria Gutierrez Valdivia, who was, um, was a chancellor, academic vice chancellor at the Universidad Nacional de San Agustin. And she's now the lieutenant governor of, um, of her local state in Peru. Then we have Rosalind Welch, 
at the Maxwell Institute, a theologian, Julie Willis, a geologist at BYU-Idaho, and Connie Jong, um, a business person who has a, BA, a MBA from Harvard Business School. So incredible list of contributors with amazing credentials in a huge variety of fields. Um, that is amazing. I don't know all those names, but what beautiful stories and what has really incredible accomplishments. I would think all of them are trailblazers in their field and pioneers as Latter-day Saint women, the first time doing things that no other Latter-day Saint and no other Latter-day Saint woman has done and the vision that creates for younger people. Talk a little bit about why you and Kate wrote the book. You've kind of mentioned that and I've read it in the introduction and maybe who it's written to is it would be helpful too. Okay. Well, we hope that everybody likes it, but in particular, um, we wanted it to be useful to Latter-day Saint women who, especially younger women who are kind of trying to figure out, like, is there a place for me in this church? You know, can I, can I do the stuff that I dream of doing and still, still be a Latter-day Saint who's practicing, who belongs, who's part of the community. Um, and we, we say yes. And the testimonies of the 22, 23, 24, the book are so powerful because, you know, it's one thing to say something or to theologize or to give a sermon or a talk, but it's another thing to live life. And all of these women have voted with their feet in where they are. They're members of the church, they're practicing. And, um, and to me, that just speaks volumes. So it's just the presence of the women um, in this book, in my mind, just expands the stakes of Zion in so many ways, makes the space for people who um, love the life of the mind, who want to have a career, who um, see the possibility of contributing not only in the church and in their families, but also kind of in the wider worlds of, you know, scholarly endeavor or um, research or uh, participating in the public sphere. And the thing about this is um, Kate and I have kind of, uh, we, we want to be careful in the introduction. This isn't to say that that's the only way to be a, a good Latter-day Saint woman. Um, so, you know, for years, many of the people in this book um, have felt like they didn't belong or like they were ostracized or like they um, were kind of discouraged from doing what they were doing. And this is the first place where we're saying, yay. <laughs> what you did is awesome. What you're doing is awesome. But we don't want that to mean that uh, Latter-day Saint women who decide to stay at home or who, you know, don't have high powered academic careers, um, that we don't want to say that that's not a meaningful pursuit because the whole point of the book is to say that we can pursue every needful thing. People have different talents. People have different, um, like dreams and vocations and as we work with the spirit or listen to the spirit to um, to do what God wants us to do in the world, whether that's um, be at home with young children or, um, you know, discover a way to um, help people survive heart transplants. Um, all of those things are needful in God's kingdom and all of those things are sacred, consecrated works. I love that, that your definition of belonging and adding value 
is in lots of different ways. You didn't want to write this book. And I listened to your Faith Matters podcast this morning, my walk where you and Kate talked to Tim and Aubrey. And that was one of the points you both made. That was recorded, obviously, before Kate died. And it was wonderful to hear her voice this morning as I listened to that. But you wanted to create this, elevate these stories, but not at the expense of other Latter-day Saint women's stories. And I thought that was so thoughtful. Um, talk about the framework of DNC 88 and um, why you chose to use DNC 88 as the framework for this book. Well, from a certain perspective, Doctrine and Covenants 88 is um, is very academic, right? Um, there's this long passage um, that talks about, okay, um, so, so Doctrine and Covenants 88 is really a wonderful section because it's so rich. It, it talks about learning in such an expansive way. And, and I'll just read the relevant section, which we quote, which becomes the sections of the book. Teach ye diligently and my grace shall attend you that you may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand of things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of countries and kingdoms, that you may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to magnify the calling whereunto I have called you and the mission with which I have commissioned you. So this is so interesting because um, in this revelation, the Lord is talking about establishing a school, the school of the prophets. And when we think about church schools, we we tend to think about, well, we're going to, you know, read the scriptures and like talk about how to apply it in our lives. Um, but here, you know, this, this um, scope of what can be studied, what is worth studying is just explosively large. It goes everywhere, you know, um, in the earth and under the earth, um, things which have been, which are, which must shortly come to pass, you know, just like this, like the dimensions of time, space, um, politics, um, judgments, you know, understanding cultures and kingdom, countries and kingdoms, I guess we call that human geography. So, you know, so broad. And this is the same section that also talks about establishing a house, um, you know, which we, which would be the, the Kirtland temple. So um, the point is, I think, is that the Lord was saying through Joseph Smith, who had this very expansive mind, that all kinds of learning are useful and, and, valuable and indeed needful and that um this could be spiritual learning this could be you know actually there's no distinction between spiritual and secular learning all kinds of learning are, are spiritual and have this kind of sacred value so we thought that was so perfect for this book which tries to gather together all kinds of learning and show how there's all these different perspectives that you can take on the gospel um depending on the kind of tools and the lens that you've got um, but they all kind of reveal different things about the same thing because um, it's all part of one great whole. Um, Ariel Silver, Silver talks about this a lot. Um, the cover of the book talks about it a lot. So the cover of the book is beautiful, um, by the way. The book cover is just terrific. Isn't it so good? So um, it was made by Melissa Shikamba, who is a um, an artist who usually specializes, I think, in, in figures, like in people. Uh, and so this was like a new kind of challenge for her, but she was really happy to do it. And she did a wonderful job. And so basically what we did is um, we kind of took a poll and we said, everyone say what's on your kitchen table. 
and um, and everyone said what was on their kitchen table or or like on on a workspace, you know, a table that they, that they worked with frequently. And so we made this huge list and then we, we, we gave it to Melissa and then she had to turn that into like a beautiful non-chaotic image. Um, and it was, she, she did such a great job. And we particularly love the bees on this book because they, you know, they give it a lot of life. Um, Kira Krakos talks about how she's petting bees in the fields of Missouri when she's doing her field work. And, um, and Melissa, the artist herself says she loves bees because, um, to her, they symbolize the divine, you know, they're matriarchal, um, and they, they work together and they, you know, enhance and, and like facilitate life for all these other things around them and you know that they're creative they build so so we just love the cover too and, and again that that just you know the basket um is a, it's a maori flax basket which she depicted there um holding everything together again with this idea you know everything is kind of can kind of come together and um they're not in conflict with each other they all exist in the same space and they all are part of it, a needful they're, they're all needful for uh, for life. One of the things, uh, if you've talked to me before I read any of this, I would have said, and you asked me, Melissa, about the School of Prophets, I would have just put that in the past and not a framework for continuing to learn and grow and sort of part of our theology going forward and taking the principles of the School of the Prophets. So that, I don't know if you want to talk more about that, but I, I thought that was just beautiful. and. Very helpful for me is with an ongoing restoration. Then I'd love to have you talk more about belonging and how that's a two-way street. And um, belonging is a real part of, I think, your ministry and and this book. So those are two things <laughs> potentially to go for. Well, one thing that I learned when I was kind of doing the contextual research for Doctrine and Covenants 88 is that one of the things they taught at the School of the Prophets was just straight up English language. Like like grammar, um, and and Joseph Smith, the prophet apparently who had not received a lot of education in his life, um, would come home from the school of the prophets and and talk to his family about the grammar that he had learned that day, and um, to me that's such a lovely image because you know sometimes we we, we um, we allow figures from the past, especially very important figures to become kind of larger than life and, and to kind of have this, this like halo about them, you know, everything they did or said was, was perfect and no one was ever better at anything. And they were always like the best and the awesomest. Um, but, but that kind of uh, interpretation doesn't leave a lot of space for, for them to be real people. Um, and it can be kind of hard on them when we hold them to these impossible standards. And so I love this image of the prophet Joseph as someone who, you know, had so many gifts, but who had not been trained um, had, had not had an extensive training in language and, and who was learning these things for the first time. And, and he was humble enough to, to learn. Right. I mean, he, he wasn't so proud that he, that he didn't want to be in a space where people would know that he wasn't very well educated. He, he was just like, yeah, let's learn. Um, and that kind of humility and, and self-confidence at the same time and, um, and openness that, that love of learning, I think is so inspiring for all of us. Like we, we can always learn stuff. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn Spanish right now and it's very humbling because, um, 
I don't know. I just, it's like <laughs> a whole other language. And, um, but, you know, I think that's what the, the contributors of the book are saying is that um, we can always be learning and um, new knowledge doesn't have to threaten our current worldview. If our if our current worldview can just be inclusive and expansive, you know, of course, of course, we're going to learn new things. Um, new knowledge is only threatening when our worldview is very rigid, and um, and we think we we know it all. Um, you know, but how could we? You know, there's so much out there. I love that. Um, talk about belonging. That was really interesting for me to hear you and Kate um, talk about belonging and. Just your thoughts on that. And you've talked already about the stakes of Zion that may be part of belonging, but share with our listeners your thoughts on that. Well, we hope that the book, um, we hope that the diversity and the plurality of voices in the book help to articulate what it means to belong. And in some ways, belonging is predicated on everyone being different. Like, like often we think about belonging means we're all the same. Like I I'm the same. So I fit in. So I belong, but that's actually, that's actually not what belonging is. Belonging means that, um, there's this thing, this, this force or this power this affinity that connects lots of different people, um, and, and pulls them together into this group. And we hope that this book can kind of model that kind of belonging. Um, you know, unity is only meaningful if it pulls together diverse people. Otherwise, it just means that, you know, people were manufactured in, in, the, in the same factory, like Frisbees or something like that. Um, but but that's not that's not what unity is, right? Unity is people coming together and we can't come together if we don't have distance between us. And so, um, you know, the way that a political scientist will look at the church versus a mathematician uh, not, not just the church, but also the gospel and a political scientist, the way that a political science, scientist will look at the gospel um, compared to how a mathematician looks at the gospel to how um, a biologist looks at the gospel. It's all so different. And yet it, it points to this kind of, there's like this, this attractive force between all of them. I think that, 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 that signals through the spirit that all of these things are true. What would you say to a Latter-day Saint, and you may have felt this at times, as I just don't feel like I belong. Um, what would you say to that person? I would say welcome to the club. <laughs> I mean... You, um, would you say it's on the others to sort of help them belong, or is it kind of a... Or the things you've done at times <laughs> where you didn't feel like you belonged to sort of work to meet people and sort of um, bridge the divide? I, that was... Any thoughts on that? Well, for me, um, someone told me, uh, I was in graduate school my husband was in graduate school in Los Angeles and someone told me something that had really stuck with me. Um, you know, that, you know, that there are many ways to not belong for sure. Um, one of them tends to be like political affiliation, right? Like depending on where you are, that can be a big, and so, um, so, so I ran into this person and, uh, they were telling me about how they had been raised and they said, you know, you know, my parents were always like hardcore Democrats and, um, but they always, and so they taught us kids to always like work really hard 
and to be the people who were always there, like cleaning up and to be the people who, you know, served in callings, um, you know, with their hearts and souls. And, and so there, there could be no, like, uh, there could be no question about whether Democrats were cool. And I guess in some ways that's um, a kind of like model minority uh, approach, mm-hmm. or maybe that, you know, maybe it's like unfair that like, you know, people who are minorities or women have to work extra hard or work twice as hard to be noticed or whatever. But, um, but that, that's not what I'm, that's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is um, it's not a spectator sport. Like, like the gospel is not a spectator sport. Being a member of the church is not a spectator sport. So when we spectate, um, it's easy to feel left out. But when we, when we do things, when we're involved in people's lives, when we involve ourselves, when we kind of just jump in and, and do the work that needs to be done, I think that's really satisfying because we know that God wants us to do this work and we're not waiting for anyone else. And, um, we're just doing the work that we know that God needs done. And, and when we do that, I think that also connects us with other people. And um, especially like in places outside the United States where branches are very small, I think sometimes it's easier to belong because um, they just need bums in the seats. <laughs> you know? And um, you can be as weird as you like, uh, <laughs> but, but it's, they need someone to like play the piano in, in primary. Um, so that, that's a real blessing actually, I think of growing up in the church where, uh, growing up in the church in a place where there aren't, you know, there's, there's not this huge kind of cultural majority of Latter-day Saints as you have in Utah. Utah is like the weirdest place in the world to be a Latter-day Saint. There's, there's, you know, it's like, it's like the Antarctica, um, <laughs> of, of the Latter-day Saint world. Like there's only penguins here and, and, and we're very like, it's like most people don't have this experience of, of what I'm saying. Um, but I, we say, we quote something that Chieko Okazaki said. She said, be spiritually independent enough that your relationship with the Savior doesn't depend on your circumstances or on what other people say and do. And and this like independence that Chieko Okazaki mentions, I think um, is really important because, um, you know, people are imperfect. And the one thing that we can control is, you know, how how we act on our desire to follow the savior and to love, to love God and love God's children. And, you know, that's something that we can control. That was beautiful. Uh, when I read the introduction, I think that quote is in the introduction. I tweeted it out and I just thought it was a terrific, I hadn't heard that before from her work. Um, What's on your mind you'd like to share with listeners? Sometimes I don't ask a leading question. I just let guests say, this is what I'd like to talk about at this point. Right. Well, I've been trying to put my finger on why this book is such a landmark. And I think it is for for a number of reasons. Um, Number one, the Living Faith series books tend to be like one scholar from one discipline sharing like one set of experiences so that that was for example my memoir crossings was was that you know it was like everything you wanted to know about a chinese history professor who gets cancer you know but but very very narrow in that sense and i think this is the first um book dedicated to strengthening faith that includes such a wide range of perspectives 
And I think that's just like a powerful combination because, because like, for example, if you're reading my book, you can be like, oh, Melissa, you said this thing here that totally disqualifies you in my eyes. You know, you know, you're, you're, you've revealed yourself to be too liberal, you know, too much of a socialist, like, you know, forget it. I have nothing to learn for you, from you. But, um, and then you can just like throw out the whole book, but, um, hopefully you don't do that, but, but you know, that, that, that can happen when it's just like one book, but this is like 23 or 22, however you count it, different perspectives, which are all kind of their own testimony. So all together, that feels so powerful. Like, like it's not just two witnesses, it's like 22 witnesses, you know, and, um, and and it establishes the validity and the beauty of the gospel for, um, people who care about intellect, people who care about following Christ. I think that's really great. The second thing about this, that's a landmark is, you know, obviously it's a book of all women and, you know, we have so many books, um, even a book about women written completely by men. By men. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and no one just, no one bats tonight. It's just totally normal. Um, because of, because of the various systematic imbalances that we have in our community and our history. But um but this is the first book um, in which they're all completely um, qualified, high achieving contributors, and they all just happen to be men. <laughs> Sorry, they all just happen to be women. So um, it's just incredible, and um, and so it's so valuable to have these female role models um, to to listen to the teaching of women to um to listen to these different perspectives uh valerie hudson has this really funny anecdote where she well it was actually even funnier but we weren't allowed to print the whole thing <laughs> um but she has this anecdote about a uh we weren't allowed to print it because it was slightly crass but um she has this anecdote about being in a conference is this kind of pivotal moment in her career um where it was all male panel we call them mantles uh, and uh, a, a person got up and asked a question about NATO's follow-on forces strategy, and the person answering answered with this un- unintended sexual double entendre, um, just totally unaware of you know what how what of how it sounded, and um, she burst out laughing. Uh, she like totally lost control. She had to like leave the hall because she was <laughs> laughing so hard. She couldn't stop herself. And that was like this um, pivotal moment in her career where she realized that if we're locked into a, a narrow masculinist thinking, as she puts it, um, well, we won't be able to see these other possibilities. So, so the perspectives of these you know, botanists, biologists, medical researchers, um, emergency room physicians who are also women um, are shaped by their various lived experiences, which are which are often in many ways different from the lived experiences of many men. So that's also just an enrichment. And then the last thing um, about the book that I think is awesome is that it's got um, such representation of who the church really is. So, so often, um, like especially in... Well, there's so many, so many venues. Um, the church is heavily overrepresented uh, by people from Utah who tend to be Business white and people. so tend to be male. <laughs> um, but in this book, we have kind of uh, 
which is uh, in this book we've captured um you know a little bit obviously you can't get everyone in the first pass but we've tried to really expand that kind of sense of who's in this church um who's speaking who's teaching and who's worth listening to and these people are not just from utah you know and, and they're not just americans and they're not just um uh, sorry they're not just like men um so so we've got people from um the philippines uh, nigeria china uh, new zealand samoa um people who are native hawaiian um people from seneca and Diné backgrounds we have all of these different people um the people who are african-american um people who uh you know grew up in in different places like all around the united states or all around the world so it's just really refreshing to me to kind of be able to capture the global church um and, and to to say like this this is who we are um and and what one of the work that i'm doing at the church history department and that kate was doing was also focused on um showing the church to itself you know so when we think about latter-day saints we don't just think about um, you know, pioneers and bonnets pushing handcarts across Wyoming. There were all of those people, but there are, at this point in the 21st century, there's so many more kinds of pioneer stories and um, you know, inspiring stories that we can all learn from and we can all um own in a way, um, in a non-appropriating way, because we have all consecrated our experiences, our time. And our um, like the the what what we have reaped from life to to the cause of building Zion and those stories are so rich. Um, so if you go to the global histories in the Gospel Library app, it's like in the church history section. You can read stories of Latter Day Saints from all over the world, and they're still being published. They're kind of coming out through the pipeline, but there's there's many there already. Um, Kate was working on histories of the young women, and she was trying really hard to include global voices and stories of, you know, so instead of just like, you know, what were people on the Wasatch Front experiencing uh, when the proclamation on the family was announced, you know, what did people in Japan um, think about that, like young women in Japan. Uh, and so uh, the the kind of third major project of this book is to show the diversity of the church, um, how we are in these different places. And, you know, our leaders like Elder Christofferson, you know, Elder Cook um, have spoken so much about the, the need for us as a Latter-day Saint people to acknowledge and embrace this diversity and to use that as the kind of the driving force for for living the gospel, you know, when you are with a lot of different people, you've got to turn lots of cheeks and you've got to uh, go the extra mile and you've got to uh, forgive a lot. And these are all pretty basic aspects of the gospel. And we get to live those aspects um, when we're in such a diverse global church. That's beautiful, Melissa. It's just beautiful. It's my vision of the future. And talk, um, if you will, a little bit about. I'm kind of thinking of younger Latter-day Saints that are wondering about um, how are they going to make it and will they, and that are career-minded and want to get a degree and maybe a master's and a PhD. Take us back to your younger self. Um, I don't know if you thought as a teenager you were going to do the things you did or 
Um, as a college student, if you thought you'd get a PhD one day and be teaching, just a little bit about your personal story. Maybe there were voices around you that said, you can't do this. And you don't have a lot of role models that are Latter-day Saint women with your cultural heritage doing this. So you're very much of a trailblazer. And I think there's principles in your story, if you're willing to share a little bit, would help listeners um, that are younger. Well, thanks for that opportunity. I mean, I remember when I was a high school student, um, I was, I did feel very um, ambivalent about going to, you know, try to do something really hardcore and academic. Cause I'm like, well, you know, I want to be a mom. I want to have kids. So, um, you know, what could I do that would allow, allow me to, to do that. And actually one of the reasons I was kind of attracted to academia was because academics have fairly flexible schedules. Actually, that's not really, they don't show up for class all the time. So, but, but besides class, um, you know, I had this idea that academics had flexible schedules. So I thought, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm an academic, then I'll be able to, you know, be more flexible. And that's actually, that's actually quite true, I think. Um, but, but I did worry about it. I told, um, I told my dad, you know, I'm not really sure whether I should, you know, whether it's even worth, you know, trying to try hard in college because like, you know, what's the point? Um, And my dad's like, well, I think you can do both. You know, you're like, you'll be okay. And I was like, really? Um, I just never heard like, yeah, like I was a senior in college and I just, I was just like really surprised, but also kind of like relieved. And um, I thought, okay, well, if my dad says he thinks it's okay, then, you know, maybe I'll just like, test the waters. And um, I got to school and I really loved uh, Chinese language. And well, actually that's not true. I, at first I was really bad at Chinese language <laughs> um, because I was running cross country and I was really tired all the time. And it was like this two hour class. I was really long and I was, I was like, I fell asleep in class all the time. Like I would wake up at the end of the class when people were like packing up their books and I'd be like, Oh, I guess it's time to go. So it was, it was actually really bad, but, um, eventually I, I got better and I learned to love Chinese and, uh, and I just loved, um, I had this junior project where I read the, the diaries of Andrew Stripmatter as Protestant missionary in China. And it was like this huge, like aha moment for me would be like, I had looked in archives before I looked at like at the archives, um, like the letters of Helen Keller and stuff like that. But so I already knew the archives were magical, but reading the diaries of someone who like me had this very religious background, who was a missionary, you know, I was thinking of serving a mission and who was learning Chinese. I was like, wow, we are like really similar. We have so much in common. Like, this is insane that, um, humans human experience is not that different you know like like generation after generation and place after place we're basically just like reliving the same story over and over again you know and that's like made this deep impression on me i'm like wow the past is really cool there's such cool people there and um and so that's how i started to get into history so um so then uh actually when i i i i I graduated from college, um, but I deferred my PhD program because I I got married right after I graduated and my husband had to finish a thing. And um, so he was on, um, sorry, I just got distracted. Someone knocked on my door. Um, 
what was I? Okay, so I graduated from college. Married. I got married uh, right after I graduated. Um, and and then I, I did a fairly traditional Latter-day Saint woman thing, which is that I followed my husband to where he was. But this is actually quite important because he had to finish his undergrad degree. So, yeah, that's important. And I was actually on the BYU campus for a year, so that was really cool. And um, and then he, I did two years uh, of coursework. So he followed me to Massachusetts uh, for two years, and he taught middle school math which became quite important later on when he needed to get a more low-key job. And so that was really good for both of us. And then he started law school at UCLA and then I, I followed him. So we were kind of switching off back and forth depending on on who needed to really be in one place at one time. And, and once I left um, Cambridge, I never went back. I did the rest of my degree kind of remotely um, over email, basically, because we didn't have Zoom. <laughs> But that was that was uh, that was fine, um, and I had a bunch of babies. I had four kids. Uh, I didn't get an academic job after I graduated because I was dealing with my children, and it was mostly sewage disposal. And my husband at that <laughs> point had a really um, demanding job as a lawyer in Hong Kong. But then at a the, the certain point in Hong Kong, um, he was just getting such horrible working hours. We never saw him. Um, he was super stressed out, and so I was like, "Well, maybe I can um, apply for a job." And so then I applied for a job and I got this job at the University of Auckland. And so then we went there. And so my whole life has kind of been um, back and forth uh, tag teaming with my husband on who needed to be working. Um, when I was doing my dissertation research in China, full-time field work, uh, my husband uh, took a year off of his, um, like deferred from law school for a year, or I guess he, t- he took like a leave for a year. And so um, I've just been so blessed that he's been, um, such a wonderful partner and we've just been able to kind of switch around based on who needs to be, you know, in one place at one time. So that's really helped me, um, with my, with my uh, interests. And I've just, I've just loved, I've loved being able to explore things uh, as an academic and to solve problems that I want to solve. It's just, um, a huge gift. I love your story, Melissa, and I. you condensed a, a, about 20 years or something like that into um, five minutes. But listeners, I love the principle of write your own story, but I think it's helpful, this book and your personal story and Kate's story, to create vision in younger Latter-day Saints that some just kind of know from age four that this is what they're going to do for the rest of their life. But we're parents of six kids, and we have a range in there of some that kind of know what they're going to do right out of high school and some that are figuring that out kind of precept upon precept. Um, and I'm sure that your older self, your younger self, if you could, she could look at your older self and be, oh my gosh, <laughs> I never had any idea this would be my life, but it's this beautiful life you're living. Um, and so I think it's great to hear these stories, listeners. Um, younger Latter-day Saints, male and female, I think it's good. I want my sons to hear stories of Latter-day Saint women. (laughs) I want our congregations. I think that helps us all to do better and to value everybody's contributions. So your personal story is a beautiful story within our our larger context. Um, You've been open about your cancer diagnosis, I think, in 2017. Do you want to update listeners about that, about how your health is? Yeah, sure. When you write a book about your colon, you have no um, expectation <laughs> of privacy. No. So, so I'm just kind of, um, I'm like in a kind of in between place right now. I guess um, nothing horrible is happening. 
but I'm not like fixed either, I guess I would say. It's uh what's the word for it? Cancer has like it's like a like a roller coaster. It's got like a lot of ups and downs. I feel like I'm kind of coming up to you know like how you're on the roller coaster and it like comes up to like a a like a, it slows down. Uh-huh. And then you know something's coming. Yeah, I feel like I'm right there. Well, you're honest. Well but um yeah, I'm like way I've gotten way more time than I ever thought I would have. So this is a huge milestone in at the end of March of this year. Uh, my credit card from New Zealand is going to expire. Wow. Uh, I remember when I got diagnosed the first time, like I never, I did, I, this just seemed impossibly far away to me. March, 2023. Wow. I wondered if I'd ever, you know, make it, but I have, haha. You're brave. Thanks for being kind of honest. I, those are tender questions I'm asking you. So um, a lot of people love and care about you and are aware of your journey. As you've talked about it, the book Crossings is a book, as I was mentioning to my daughter, you were coming on the podcast. She's a Harvard Div School master's grad and very connected with you and your work. And she loved your book and um, Crossings and how helpful that was and to her. And I think I speak for lots of Latter-day Saints. I love Adam Miller's, um, um, just I'll read that, what he wrote. The voices gathered here, smart, strong, honest, charitable move that every voice is needed. They demonstrate our ongoing need to keep enrolling new students in the Restoration's ever-expanding School of the Prophets, fostering a global cadre of alumni who can speak from diverse perspectives and embody a deep cross-section of faith. So I love that. Um, Talk to, if you've got more time, I've taken it a little longer than I thought I would, but if you've got more time, I'm Talk to younger Latter-day Saints that are sort of in a faith crisis. They may be uncomfortable about historical stuff or where we are in current stuff, and they have a deep testimony of the restored gospel, but at the same time are uncomfortable about, and they're kind of dealing with the dissidents. Any general advice you give to that group? Yeah. Um, Someone asked me the other day, you know, how can you deal with the cognitive dissonance? And I was like, well, cognition is really important. Like I make my living by cognition, right? Like I'm I'm supposed to be thinking, researching, writing. I don't go to church for cognition. Like I go to church for a different reason, which is to connect with people and to have a community in which I can serve and from whose experiences, both good and bad, I can learn. Um, I think that communities are kind of like, like, like our first religious communities. If you're talking about young Latter-day Saints, they've probably been raised in the church or they've, they've converted at a young age. And that's probably their first religious language. Um, I guess they're, um, you know, it's a different story, I guess, for people who, who join the church as converts. That's their second religious language. Um, but just, just for the moment, speaking about our mother tongue, you know, I grew up speaking English. It's a weird language. It's got a lot of problems. <laughs> like, think of all the irregularities, all the things that don't make sense. Think of all the kind of, um, like, bastardizations from different languages. Mm-hmm. Like, French, that is, the, you know, you can see the French fingerprints in the English language. You can see the... 
um, you know, these different influences, the weird words that like sleep, like selfie, you know, that sneak in and um, totally abominable words that then become like part of everything. Um, I think that um, religion as a, is, is a language as well. And in that sense, it's a gift. Uh, it's a complex context within which we can express ourselves and within which we experience the world. It frames the world in certain ways. So, for example, if you grew up speaking Chinese as a first language, you grew up with this concept of measure words, which is that whenever you're counting things or measuring things, you use a specific word that is appropriate to that thing. So, for example, a pen um, has a measure word that usually applies to kind of long cylindrical cylindrical objects, but also to dogs. Um, A piece of paper has a measure word that applies to long, thin, flat things. Um, if you're in Korea, if you're learning Korean, I heard once that um, you, um, you know, you're, you're aware through the language whether something could fit into a box or not. Um, so, so every language has its different paradigms and its different ways for looking at interpreting the worlds. And to be a, to, to be raised a Latter Day Saint or to to adopt the Latter Day Saint um, religious language is to have you know a specific paradigm and a specific way of looking at the world. So. Um, so all this is to say that I think that sometimes we think that the church and the Latter-day Saint paradigm is like a, a thing. You know, some people say like a shelf with books on it. Some people say it's like a, a bridge with the keystone. Um, but but I don't think that model works all the time in, in in a way that helps us to understand like the way that our faith expands, our understanding expands, our experience expands, everything changes. And um, just like with, with our languages, you know, in the course of our lives, if we're lucky, we'll learn additional languages. Um, people in this book have learned the language of critical thinking and scholarship. Um, if you read Noemi Lubomirsky's um, contribution, like in math, that's his own total language um i i literally and i literally looked at her her <laughs> chapter and we we're like we have no idea what this is saying she's too smart <laughs> so so i think what happens when we feel when we're young and we feel as i did and as i often do actually um like the feelings of faith crisis like feelings like oh my gosh like this is breaking um this is not like i did not expect this and it doesn't fit my paradigm and it's really scary. Um when when those things happen, it's a kind of um, you know, if the church were a thing, like a bridge or a shelf or whatever, then it would truly be broken. But but that's not that's not the only thing that the church can be. That's not the only way that religion works. Religion works like a language. It works like a living organism. It works like a community of um bacteria and yeast in a loaf of in a in a lump of sourdough or bread dough like changing, evolving, stretching, expanding. And so, um, so I guess I would just say that um, hopefully the different perspectives in this book um, kind of provide that expansiveness, show that the, the church and our vision of what the church is and our vision of what God wants from us and how the spirit speaks to us can expand in many different directions. And we, we don't have to be... Um, one one thing or 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 two notes only you know that's what dissonance is is there's one note 
And then there's another note right next to it. And those two notes sound really bad next to each other because those are the only two notes. But um, if you add more notes that that can heal that dissonance, if you've ever heard um, the work of like, uh, oh shoot, how do you pronounce his first name? I'm not even sure. Lauridson, the guy who like does like choral arrangements with lots of cluster chords. Anyway, um, you know, the way a cluster chord works is that it's like this very beautiful chord, but it's very thick because it's got, it's got a little dissonance in it because there's dissonance and also harmony. It sounds really beautiful anyway. Um, but, but the point is that dissonance again is when there's only two notes and they're right next to each other and they're not the same. And that's what's like, what makes us uncomfortable. But then when you, when you add, like, you know, if you take a snapshot of one moment in a symphony, there's like lots of different instruments playing and, and they're playing different parts of different chords. And, and often there is like some dissonance, but then as a, as, a, as the piece continues to move through those different key changes and the chord changes and so on, it's, it's beautiful and interesting and surprising. And that's what we want from our religious experience. We don't want just one note, you know, that can be like thrown off by one more note. We want, um, we want richness. And, and I think as we, if we just have a, so in those times when we, when our, our old worldview has been destroyed, and, and we feel like it's broken, um, we can kind of remember that that's not the only framework for thinking about our faith. It, we can think about it in these other ways, like I'm learning some new vocabulary now, or I'm learning a new language now, um, or I'm learning about measure words, how to train people think about measure words, or I'm um, we're getting some more notes or learning some new instruments or um, going into new territory. There are all sorts of like other metaphors that are also completely apropos. Uh, for how faith works. And I think um, that, that that can hopefully give us the patience to keep on growing and stretching and to, um, and to realize that it's okay to not know everything. I mean, how horrible would it be if you knew everything at the age of 19 or 25 or 42? You know, that's like very small. And I think um, Julie Willis has a, has a point about this too. Um, let me see if I can find, it's like, it's really, good quote uh, from Carl Sagan. It says, how is it, this is a scientist, how is it that hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought. The universe is much bigger than our prophets said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. God must be even greater than we dreamed. Instead, they say, no, no, no. My God is a little God and I want him to stay that way. A religion older new that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe, hardly tapped by the conventional faiths. And Julie Willis says, I believe my heavenly parents are the gods Sagan describes. And to her thing, I would add, I believe that our faith is expansive in that way. We believe in ongoing revelation. Things even greater than we dreamed sounds a lot to me like um, God will yet reveal many great and important things. Um, President Nelson recently reiterated this, you know, that Jesus Christ was yet to perform his mightiest works. And and so I just think that um, as Latter-day Saints, um, we have the theological resources to uh, embrace that expansiveness and to kind of gather all things unto our unto our purposes, which are becoming more and more like our heavenly parents. That was a terrific segment, Melissa. Um, we don't script these podcast listeners. I was on BYU campus this past week talking with a professor about just um, the percent of BYU kids in a faith crisis and what this professor was helping them with. And one of the things that this professor said is they're looking for a new model 
they actually their goal is to stay in the church, but they um, they need a new framework that's um, just the very framework. I've heard people describe frameworks before, Melissa, but no one's done it just like you did it. Um, that was beautiful. That was absolutely beautiful for me personally and for a lot of our listeners. Um, so thank you, listeners. Um, I sometimes wonder what men can do. You talked about, I, I wrote down a phrase you use, systematic imbalances. And just an example, I don't know if this is an example. It's one that came to my mind. We just came out of ward conference in our ward. And I think this is standard in all wards. We sustain all the leaders of the church starting with the senior leaders of the church down through the local stake leaders and ward leaders. And I counted, we sustained 27 men and I raised my hand and sustained all 27 of those men. There was no issue there. Um, before we got to the first woman, our ward release society president, Michelle, and I sustained her, but I was just for the first time in my life as a 60, nearly 62 year old man, I saw that through the, lens of younger women and maybe current women and younger men, uh, maybe old men, a few like me, but, and I just was aware of that. And it caused me some being a little uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean I want women to have the priesthood or I think our church is false. I just recognize that there's work to be done to elevate the voices of women. Then one of the things our bishop did in his ward conference talk I don't think this was in response to the sustainings. It's just his natural pastoral heart. He talked about Esther and Ruth and the prophet Joseph and Isaiah, four people. And I just thought that was really beautiful. So that's me, a man, talking to other men about how we can lift the voices of women. And I think that's our responsibility to recognize structural um, imbalances and do everything we can with our point of privilege in the church to elevate the voices of women. And this book does it. <laughs> and the work of Kate and Melissa. I wanted listeners, um, as I read Kate's obituary today, I just, is it okay if I just read a paragraph from that, Melissa, for our listeners? Please. Kate loved Jesus with her whole heart. There wasn't a part of her that didn't breathe the God and gospel. Breathe God and Gospel. She was honored to lead teams to tell the story of Latter-day Saints to outsiders and stories of women to fellow saints. As she contemplated her passage from mortality with great sadness, it was not because she lacked confidence in the reality of an afterlife. Instead, she mourned her physical absence from the mortal lives of her beloved. She held in her hands and her heart both the certainty that death is not the end of us and the terrible tragedy of mortality cut, cut, cut short. So, Sam, your husband, Sam Brown, Kate, I assume you wrote that or it's just beautiful tribute to Kate. And you, this book honors her and your co-ministry honors her. And um, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I'm going to call you Dr. Melissa in a way because you are a doctor. Anything else you'd like to share with us? Um, well, I, I really appreciate what you said about just being aware of imbalances. Um, there's so many things that we can do without changing one existing policy or doctrine of the church just to make make the culture of our community practice um, better for women. And it, it harms men, too, yeah. you know, Um 
when if men aren't able or aren't accustomed to seeing women as full participants, you know, in life or partners that can wreak havoc on marriages, on families, all the good things that that men want to accomplish, like by being fathers and husbands um, can be damaged if, if we don't um, strive for that balance. And um, just maybe I'll just leave you with a, a parable um, from this book that is coming out hopefully in October um, with Deseret book that I've written. Um, but it's, it's called the the parable of the road to Piha. So when I lived in New Zealand, um, we on, lived on the west coast of of uh, the isthmus of Auckland, and it's if you could drive to these beaches, the very beautiful black sand beaches, but very twisty, um, going around these kind of you know hills and and small mountains and stuff. So on the road to Piha, it takes about thirty minutes to get to this beach from our house. And when we got there, the driver would be like really happy because it's a really fun road to drive. It's like, you know, being in Mario Kart. It's like, you know, the twists, the turns, you know, leaning into everything, being really tricky. But then the passengers, especially the people in the back seat, would be very unhappy. Um, they'd be carsick. And, and so the question arises, you know, if we're both in the, if we're all in the same car, how come people in the front seat are fine and indeed happy? And the people in the back seat are sick. Um, well, it has to do with the the positions, right? That because of their positions in the car, the person in the car who's controlling the car um, is the least subject to car sickness because um, they know where they're going. They have this huge view of the road. They can see down the road. Their body can understand where they're going to go. They can anticipate where they're going to go. The centrifugal forces are the smallest at that point. They have a steering wheel to hang on to. But in the back, um, you're subject to greater centrifugal forces you can't see the road ahead as well. You can't know when the car is going to turn. You're just kind of a passenger and the car turns with you. And so, so you can, you can get quite car sick. And that's, I think a, a pretty good metaphor for um, what it's like for some people in the church. Some people in the church are just naturally in the back seat um, because of, of those structures that we have. Um, and, and so um, to the people in the, in the front um, who've never felt that, who don't know what it's like, um, I suggest that you find every way you can to actually sit in the actual backseat um, and and just try as much as you can to to leave the front seat. Um, don't don't ask the passenger, you know, person in the passenger seat to tell you about the backseat. You try to sit in the actual backseat um, and, and just try as much as you can to to, to see how that feels um and talk to people there and i think that will help all of us because you know it's we don't we don't want when i'm driving and my kids say i'm car sick i i feel terrible i we, we don't want people to feel terrible um and, and but and once you felt car sick you know what a truly nasty feeling that is um and and maybe it makes you want to be a little more careful as a driver to not inflict that on other people and when people um say they feel sick you know, don't take that as a personal offense to like your driving abilities. Um, just be aware of those structural forces and those differences, um, depending on where you're sitting. You are good at analogies. That's a great one. Um, listeners, I've just been so honored to have Melissa. When I saw you as a, from a distance at Faith Matters last, that's the first time I saw you. I was kind of like a fanboy. I thought, there is <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> in a way, in the flesh. And uh, my daughter was there with us, my wife, and just there's a lot of people that really love you and appreciate your work. 
and pray for your health and are so grateful for your voice and elevating other voices for Kate Holbrook, who's gone. And I've just been so moved in this podcast listening to you and so grateful for your ministry and your work and the trailblazing work it gives other younger Latter-day Saints. Um, thanks to Maxwell Institute, um, Deseret Book, um, for their work getting this book out. We'll link in the show notes to this book at Amazon and Deseret Book. Also want to link to your book, Crossings, and also to your Faith Matters podcast with you and Kate Holbrook, if people would like to hear that. Um, so thank you. Anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Well, just thanks so much for for giving Kate and I the opportunity to uh, to share these things. I know that if she were here, she would have said so many more smart, brilliant things, but I, I, I'm doing the best I can, Kate. So thanks so much for giving us this opportunity. Thank you. Um, Richard Osler and Melissa, in a way, signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>